The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for coming back for uh, one-on-one with ANZ. As usual, we, uh, are, uh, we are answering uh, listener questions. We're going to start with a question from Andy. Um, and the question is, um, what is the most misunderstood area in markets today? Um, or in your career, what were the single most misunderstood investments you've seen and how do they play out? What were the key takeaways? And so I think we're, since you said investments, I think by markets, I think we're, we're talking about financial markets, investment markets here. So most misunderstood area in markets today. And Ben, why don't you start? And then I've got a couple thoughts. Well, you know, I, I think it's getting better understood now, but um, I think one of the most misunderstood things about the stock market and, and, you know, and the bond market is that uh, the efficient market hypothesis is, is completely wrong. It's not even close to true. Um, and, you know, pricing gets like screwed up on massive levels uh, all the time. And probably the best example is the 2008 um, housing meltdown. You know, right when the kind of housing, the CDOs, the housing kind of bonds were at their most risky, like at the height of the risk, right before they like all these things went under, they were the cheapest to buy. You, you could basically get very, very, uh, little interest rates for like massively, massively risky assets in one of the biggest financial markets in the world. I mean, it's just a right. giant, giant market, completely mispriced. Um, <laughs> there, the market was totally inefficient. Uh, and the market's very efficient at converging on a price, but not necessarily the correct price. Yeah, and I think you could say there, there's an example of that playing out right now. I neither support nor argue with the theory, but let's let's talk about the theory. Yeah. So, so I'm not taking a position. I'm not recommending anybody do anything based on this, but like here, here's yeah. a theory of how this might be playing out right now, which would be, um, you know, if you observe a lot of consumer prices in the economy right now, they seem to be heading up pretty fast. If you observe a lot of wages, they seem to be heading up pretty fast. If you look at how the bond market is pricing uh, expected inflation over the next 10 years, um, yeah. it, is, it is not expecting very much inflation. And yeah. so the bond market is pricing bonds as if basically these price increases that a lot of people are seeing around them are temporary. Um, and, you know, basically we'll settle down within, you know, a year, year and a half. And then we'll kind of go back to a low inflation environment like we've had for the past, you know, 20 years. Um, yeah. And so therefore, there's no need to reprice bonds. On the other hand, if we are about to enter into a higher you know, inflationary environment, there is a major kind of profit making opportunity on the table. Um, you know, by basically yeah. mispricing in the bond market. So if, if it turns no. out that's the case, it will be another case study back for what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, no, and it is amazing that like entire markets can get mispriced. And of course, individual stocks get mispriced all the time. I think it's the illusion of, you know, also like the information being out there and understood. Uh, you know, it, that's not quite the way human psychology works. It's not like that somebody gets to the right answer and then everybody agrees with them. It's like, you know, just as often somebody gets to the wrong answer and everybody agrees with them. So there, there is this like massive consensus that happens, but uh, it's not um, necessarily a reflection of anything real. Yeah. So this is, let me make my strongest defense of the efficient market hypothesis based on actually mm -hmm. what you just said. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to steel man the following case, which is, 
okay, sure, the market might not actually be efficient, but it might as well be efficient. And the reason it might as well be efficient is because you, as the individual investor, basically are in the middle of a market psychology. You are a node in a social network that has converged on a set of beliefs. Um, mm-hmm. And your ability to step outside of those beliefs is basically, like for most of us, non-existent. Um, ah, yes. Yeah. So that part is very efficient. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. I agree. So, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, you know, so in other words, it's kind of like, you know, if Mr. Spock from Star Trek were making investment yeah. decisions, you know, maybe he can stand outside of consensus belief, but for the rest of us, like it's actually like very difficult to do that. Yeah. And so therefore right. in practice, we can't assume that the crowd is wrong because we are the crowd. Right. No, I think that's right. I mean, I, th- I, I think that's, that's exactly what happens is the market's very efficient at getting consensus. Um, <laughs> sometimes that consensus is quite dangerous, but, uh, but that happens very fast. Yeah. You know, p- p- people don't break with the herd very easily. Yeah. Some uh, friends of mine and I earlier today were passing around, uh, apropos of another topic, or passing around, uh, you know, Enron cover stories um, from, uh, you know, kind of early 2001, uh, including this like spectacular uh, investment report from one of the big investment banks in October of 2001, talking about how all the rumors about trouble at Enron are wrong and this company's poised for, you know, tremendous growth in the future. And then, of course, they were bankrupt by the end of the year. Well, they Um, had their they had their greatest press run right into the you know, fraud, <laughs> right, like right. it, they literally hit their press maxima right before and their stock price maxima right before the whole thing unraveled. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's that right. It's that fall off the cliff that makes you wonder whether, you know, it should it have been possible to, uh, to, you know, in the case like an Enron to see that. Um, <laughs> you would think, but you, know. you, you would think. Um, okay, so related to that then is actually so my idea of sort of the biggest misunderstanding in the markets, which is something I think about a lot now, which basically is you know having now worked in equities, you know worked in you know both uh, sort of private equity, venture capital, startup world, and then public equities, public companies for a long time. Um, I, I've <laughs> I've become convinced that there's no such thing as a stock. Um, and mm-hmm. what I, what I mean by that is I don't think stocks exist. I think there are only options and bonds. Um, and mm-hmm. that if you hold a stock in a public company, you're actually either holding an option or a bond. And it's very mm-hmm. important to understand the difference. Um, why is that? Okay. So the way to think about it basically is that a bond, right? A bond is all downside, right? Mm-hmm. And so a bond, basically the whole point of a bond is you're going to get paid back plus interest. And then if anything mm-hmm. unexpected happens, it's to the downside, right? So right. You, ne- you never, as a bondholder, you never have an unexpectedly good market return. On, the, 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 the company, you hold a bond in a company, they have a great quarter. They don't send you more money because they had a great quarter, mm-hmm. right? right. They, they send you only the amount of money that they have to send you according to the contract, yeah. right? And sure. so the only new thing that can happen that affects your return is something bad. Mm-hmm. Right. So if the mm-hmm. company like hits the skids, or goes bankrupt, yeah, runs out of money, yeah, yeah, runs out of money, then you're just like completely host. And so the good news is you ought to get your money back plus interest. The bad news is you're not going to get more than that and you might get taken apart. You might lose all your money. So that's a bond, the exposure to the downside. Um, an option is the opposite or right? a call, call option specifically. A call option mm-hmm. is the opposite, which basically is by default, you're going to lose all your money. Right. Mm-hmm. Most options just expire worthless. But if something goes if something goes really well, you can make a thousand times your money. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is literally what happens with options. Like if you buy deeply out of the money call options and then, you know, a stock doubles like you make you make a fortune. Now, again, right. the, the, the expected value of the option is zero. 
but the upside is is, is a thousand x. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically, like my my mental model now basically is incumbent. You know, basically, in, in, especially non technology incumbents that are public companies, they're bonds. bonds. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I'll just give you an example. Car, every car company other than Toyota. I'm oh, sorry, other than sorry, Tesla. Every every car company mm-hmm. other than Tesla. Sorry, yeah. first Freudian slip. Um, is a bond, right? Which is, you yeah. know, by default, they're going to keep making cars. By default, they're going to pay you back. By default, you're going to make, you know, whatever, five or six percent or whatever that you make in terms of the stock, um, maybe seven or eight percent. But like, it's very unlikely that an incumbent car company is going to be the one that's going to really kind of crack the code fully on, like, you know, autonomous electric, right? Uh, you know, cars in the right, future. Right. Just, you know, maybe they will, but like, it, it seems unlikely. And so most of your exposure is to the downside. Tesla, right, it's sort of it's the exact opposite. Like, well, it's been the exact opposite this whole time for Tesla shareholders, which is like, you know, by default, Tesla goes bankrupt, right? By default, and, you know, they almost have many times, have many times. right? By yeah. default, it's like it's just, it's just an impossible task, and it can't be done, and you lose all your money as an investor. And then in the, in the extremely rare event that it works, which it has, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you make, you know, investors now have made like $700 billion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so it's like it's pure upside. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, Ben, Ben, do you think that's too, you know, now, you know, where, where this sounds like <laughs> polarizing, polarizing or harsh is it's basically a separation of companies that can basically, you know, adapt to the future versus the ones who can. Is, is that too polarized or harsh of a view? <laughs> well, you know, you love polarization, so um, yeah. I hate to, to rain on your parade in any way. I mean, they, I guess there are, you know, there's kind of the stocks that we invest in, which are kind of very, very early and obviously have that property. And then there's GM, which obviously has the bond property. I just kind of wonder about, you know, at this stage, where would you put Apple? Um, you know, they're kind of, they're a massive, uh, they're writing many, many future trends. They're not necessarily, you know, equipped organizationally to go get the future other than, you know, to lever their current product cycles. Um, so, a thousand X seems very unlikely, uh, but I don't know how you think about that. Yeah, so I think in, in I think the next step of the theory, right, would be in the way you could actually apply this yeah. analytically. Was you, you would say Apple is a bond staple staple to an to an option. Right? <laughs> I see. So now you've it's got a, the hybrid instruments. Yes. Yeah, it's a two. It's a two and one. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it's yeah. sort of like the existing business. The existing business is a bond. Like the iPhone business is a yeah. bond. Um, but there is option value. And by the way, look, Apple has delivered option value. They delivered option value on the, on the watch. They delivered option value on the headphones. Um, yep. you know, they, you know, they're investing. A lot well, on the, the app store, the app store has yep. been the biggest option value. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, you, you could basically say, yeah, you could basically say like, are you, are you like, is it a high, you know, it, is the value of Apple likely to decline from, you know, whatever, 2 trillion to like 200 billion? Like, no, it's, it's probably, you know, it's probably going to stay pretty high because the iPhone and, all these, you know, their, their, their whole product line has, is on such a giant macro cycle. And, you know, it's one of the most yeah. fundamental kind of consumer products in the world. So one of the strongest brands and so forth and all these network effect lock-in things. Um, and so it's probably a pretty safe bond in there. And then to your point, like there is like, you know, maybe they get, you know, if they get another three things in the next 10 years that are like the watch, the headphones and the, um, you know, the app store, you know, those could be three very powerful option drivers. You know, to your point, like they might not grow the value of the company a thousand X, but they might double, triple, quadruple it. Right. Then the next question would be, um, how many public stocks would you characterize like even that, though? Right. How many public companies are there that even deserve to be treated as a bond staple to an option as opposed to just a bond? Yeah, that's a that is a small set. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. 
And of course, you know, this, and by the way, this is not to say that the people running these companies, you know, can't do it or that they're somehow at fault. A lot of it, a lot of this lies with the expectations of the shareholders, right? Because the, the situation a lot of big company CEOs have is that their shareholders only want the bond, right? Their, their, their shareholders actually don't want the option. You know, they, they, they yeah, well, that's the, right. The, the value stocks as they're known. Right. Value stock, right. Value stock, right. When somebody says value stock, it means that your shareholder base, the last thing your shareholder base will want you to do is to do something new. Yeah. Or take a risk or spend money. Exactly. So, yeah. So I think there's a, yeah, I, I, I always say, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's like any democracy, like who's at fault in any democracy? Like it's, it's ultimately the people. What is the line that you have? They're going to get what they want or the, oh, the yeah. The, the, yeah, this exactly applies. H.L. Mencken, H.L. Mencken famously said, democracy yeah. is the system of government by which the common man knows what he wants um, and deserves to get it good and hard. <laughs> yes, yes, that is right? Uh, right. a very very nice description of democracy. <laughs> exactly. And I would, and the relevance to the markets basically is it's the same, you know, should, the stock market is a system by which shareholders know what they want and deserve to yeah. get it good and hard, right? Yeah. Yep. We, yep. Or as, yeah. as another great historical figure, Pogo, once said, we have met the enemy and he is us. All right. Well, let's keep going. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, Nikhil Mulani asks, what subsection of the tech industry that A6TZ invests in feels the most uncertain in terms of future direction and is hardest for you and the team to form a thesis on? Um, and then um, do you interpret that level of uncertainty as a good or a bad thing? Yeah, I, I would just say, you know, um, the one that I find being very complex to forecast exactly how it's going to play out is the metaverse. Um, we know it's coming, <laughs> Uh, but you know, how VR is it, how fast, how good does VR get fast? Is there going to be a, is it proprietary metaverse? Is there a Google metaverse, a Facebook metaverse, an Amazon metaverse, an Apple metaverse, or will it be an open metaverse like the internet or the original internet, at least, um, you know, will the currency be crypto? Will the property be NFTs? What will the people be? Will they be NFTs? Um, and you know, it's a very, like, there's so many, many, many open questions on how it'll actually work. And there's kind of a lot of people starting to build things in the area. So that's one that I, I would just say is the timing and the nature of it is super uncertain. Like, I think that we believe pretty strongly there will be a metaverse or many metaverses, uh, but how they look is is much, much harder to say. And it you know, the other thing that's happened, of course, with COVID is the metaverse is getting accelerated. I don't think there's any question about that. And then, look, I, th I think uncertainty, you know, in our business is the best thing because um, that's what creates, you know, the alpha. That's what, you know, kind of distinguishes the people who really, really understand what's going on from, you know, the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, that's where the value is created. You know, that's where the risk is. That's where taking the risk changes the world, you know, all those things seem very good to me. Yeah, that's actually the point I wanted to build on. So I, I wanna, instead of specifically answering the question, I'm going to talk about the, yeah. the theory of uncertainty because uh, I think it's yep. really important and you, you just alluded to it. So and this, this actually relates to the conversation we just had um, about uh, about how markets work also. So so there's there's actually this whole field of like information theory and then there's there's these economists over the years. Uh, Friedrich Hayek is sort of the famous one originally that, that talked about kind of the, what he called the knowledge problem, which basically is like how, how do you actually ever, how does anybody ever actually know how anything is going to work? And so he, he identified what he called the knowledge problem, which basically, right, is that, is that uh, you know, it's like any individual business person, like anybody running a restaurant has like an incredibly hard time forecasting anything just for that restaurant. Um, yeah. And so the odds that any central planning bureau is ever going to accurately forecast anything in the economy are just super low. 
um, or basically zero, right? Which is sort of why socialism doesn't work. And so, that, that, so that's one aspect of sort of the theory of uncertainty, uh, which is it's just it's really hard to get to the knowledge. Like it's just the knowledge may be out there, or it may not be, but like it's really hard to get to it, and you have to be really close to something to really figure anything out. So there's one, and then there's like you know sort of information theory, <clears throat> and sort of you know information theory is like basically w- w- what is information. And it turns out like one of one of the things that you kind of is you kind of think deep into this. One of the things that you, sort of pops out is you can make kind of a very strong case that like all information is surprise, right? Mm. Like, all, yeah. all, right, all, right. Cause it, right. Cause if you, if it's not a surprise, it's not information. It's not, you already know it. Yeah, exactly. It's known. It's not new, new information. Yeah. It's, it's not new. By definition, it's not new information if it's not a surprise. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course this, and this is the basis and you, you know, maybe they overdo it, but this is the basis of, this is maybe the sort of good idea buried in the efficient market hypothesis kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is basically like, if it's already, if it's already known then it's already baked in, it's already priced in. Everybody already knows that the assumptions are set. Um, and so there, there's no, therefore there's no profit making opportunity to having that information because everybody's already accounted for it. Um, mm-hmm. which basically means you're in search of surprise. If you're in search of new information, if you're in search of new information, it means you're in search of surprise. Um, mm-hmm. and then this relates back to the question, which is, okay, what is uncertainty? Like philosophically or theoretically, what is uncertainty? Uncertainty is basically <laughs> new information is going to arrive. You can't predict it. And so basically it's like at a very kind of deep theoretical level, it's basically predicting the future is like quite quite literally seriously impossible yes yeah, um, so it's, it's the uh heisenberg uncertainty principle on steroids right uncertainty never resolves i actually you always hear this a lot if you listen to like earnings calls or ceos they'll say we well, you know, mm-hmm. they'll say something like you know this they'll say like you know boy like you know we had an okay quarter but like we're in an environment of like extreme uncertainty um yeah. and i always kind of want to like break into the call and say you're always in an environment of high uncertainty like there, there's no CEO in history who's ever been like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what's going to happen from here. Yeah. Because, of course, you don't. Because how could you? <laughs> right? Because it's all going to be surprised. Right. Um, and so basically, like, you know, where, where I come out on the fence, it's like, OK, you, you, then, you just you really have to wrap your head around, OK, what, you know, as as a human being with very imperfect perception in a world in which basically everything important is going to happen from here on out is surprised. Like, how do you really calibrate yourself to have a plan and a set of expectations and a method um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, you have a good chance of benefiting from surprise, you know, without basically the risk of being totally like destroyed by it. Um, And I and I I think quite honestly, like I think the the beginning of that is quite simply humility, um, which is like we really quite genuinely aren't going to know. Um, Mm -hmm. I I will say venture capital teaches you this in a very like uh, harsh way. Um, you know, is, you know, you'll, you'll get these founders that come in and they, they basically tell you, here's all this stuff that's going to happen. And you, because you are, you know, you are, you know, you are very smart and well-educated and have a lot more experience, you know, say, well, no, you know, that's not going to happen. And then you don't invest. And then yeah. it turns out that's the next, you know, gigantic trillion dollar company that you read about for the next 30 years. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you, you kind of get smacked like this all the time. Um, mm-hmm. and so, um, I, and, and, you know, that's sort of the extreme version of it, but I think everybody kind of deals with that in their life. And I think that's maybe yeah. just the permanent, permanent state of affairs. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think I yes, <laughs> that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, good, fantastic, fantastic. Okay, thank you, everybody, and we will be back uh, with you soon. And please keep the questions coming on Twitter. Okay, thanks, everybody. We appreciate it. See you, everybody, soon.